can open your Bible to Luke chapter 12, Luke 12, and we're going to pick up at verse 13, uh, and we're looking at the parable this morning of the rich fool. Before we get to the parable, though, I want to play a little Price is Right with you. Now, Bob Barker helped me to get through many a sick day when I was a younger kid in grade school. It was a great show, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Rob, you are no Bob Barker, and that's true, but humor me this morning, okay? It's no secret that the cost of certain goods has been going up in the last couple of months. So I'm going to throw out a couple of items, and I want you to tell me what the national average is in cost per pound of this item. Okay, you got that? You with me? Thank you. Thank you. All right, here we go. We're going to begin with a common breakfast item, an item that I believe should be a food group all of its own. This one sits at your breakfast table, and I want to know, what is the price per pound of bacon right now? $7.50. Hit the nail on the head. Incredible. And that's up year over year from last year. It was about five fifty last year, so we're up 25-30% with bacon. And in that grisly goodness, if there's anything that should be distributed to everyone and every table should have, of course, it needs to be bacon, right? So we're going to think now of Turkey Day, which is coming up, right? They're saying that this year is going to be the most expensive Thanksgiving in human history. So here's the question. What is the price per pound of a frozen turkey this year? What do you think? Come on, per pound, 219, two, 333. You guys are buying organic turkeys. Uh, the cost per t- pound is $1.41. That's up 22 cents per pound or 15.6%. Bob Barker, you're getting a little depressing this morning. Okay, I get it. Well, the reason I'm bringing this up to you is that we are going to be addressing a huge discipleship issue in the scriptures, and it has to do with the disciples' relationship to money and possessions. You know, Jesus talked about money a lot in the scriptures, and as we've been looking through these parables, we're looking at Luke's parables. He's the disciple who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Now, did you know that almost every chapter of Luke and Acts deals with material possessions or wealth. It's incredible. It's a big topic. And this morning, we are going to begin by looking at a real story that hits too close to home. So let's look at verses 13 to 15. The text begins, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I suggest to you that this story hits too close to home because just like then, 
many a relationships have been broken when the assets have been divided. Now, Jesus, as he responds to this gentleman, calls him man. And in the Middle Eastern culture, this is actually a pretty rough way to talk to someone. It's like saying, I'm not going to call you friend. I'm not going to use your name. I'm just going to simply acknowledge your existence by calling you man. You know, as Jesus is talking to him, he's saying, man, I don't want to get in the middle of your little squabble. There's bigger issues at play here. There are relational issues at play here. Don't you realize that you're on the brink of destroying your relationship with your brother? Isn't that more important than these possessions that you're dealing with here? It makes me think of a story I read. Uh, Pastor Kent Hughes was talking about a woman that he knew in his life You see, she and her five sisters grew up with their father in the Depression era, and quite contrary to many people's experiences during that time, he actually was able to rise and become a very successful banker. Later in life, she went off to college. She was living in a little Midwestern town and went away to the big city, met her husband. They planted roots there. When their aged father finally went home to be with the Lord, she and her husband returned and uh, were quite shocked when they went into the house to comfort their poor mother. You see, every single item in the house had a tag on it with one of the five sisters' names. They were appalled. They didn't say anything. And things got even worse around the dinner table that evening. As they were sitting around dinner, there was barely any talk, uh, long moments of silence. The husband finally got to where he couldn't take it any longer. So he stood up. He walked slowly around the table, stood behind his, behind his mother, and he said, Look, you guys have put your tag on everything in this house that you want. Now we're putting our tag on what we want. And he put his hands on her shoulder. Now, this is really the heart of the matter. And this is what caused Jesus to recoil at the man's request. You know, Jesus really didn't care if this guy got his. And I get the sense that he doesn't really care that much if you and I get ours. He's far more concerned with the relationships that God has placed in our world. Uh, I I think of this quote from Leslie Newbigin. He said, well, our problem as seen in the light of the gospel is that each of us overestimates what is due him compared to what is due to his neighbor. And, And Jesus had very strong words for this kind of thinking. He said, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Here's the deal. Covetousness has a way of blinding your eyes to what really matters. And so for Jesus, you know how he operates. He knows that this brother is dealing with covetousness, but he doesn't look him right in the eye and say, you greedy money grubber. No, he says, Let me tell you a story. Because remember, parables find a back window into the heart. So here's his story. And he told them a parable saying, 
The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all of my grains and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you in the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? Now I want you to see a couple of sad realities about this man's prosperity. The first thing you notice if you look at verse 16, the text says, the land produced. Now notice Jesus didn't say that this guy was a competent individual. He had the secret sauce. He went to the right kind of schools, knew the right kind of people. He networked well. And that caused him to rise up to be the best farmer in all the land. He doesn't say anything like that. In fact, as you look at what Jesus is telling us, it's almost as if this man's prosperity is more an accident than it has to do with his skill set. You know, in the scriptures, that nothing really happens by accident. But you have to come to acknowledge what the humble see. The humble realize that prosperity is the result of many factors. Many factors. Like, think about good growing conditions. There are many factors involved. You have to have the right amount of rain, the right amount of sunshine, the right kind of weather, good soil conditions. The same thing is true about our economic success. Good economies can cool down. Bull markets can become bear markets. But the problem with this rich man is he believed that he was the sole factor in his prosperity. We also notice something else that's sad about his world. You see, in the Middle Eastern culture that this man's living in, big decisions were always made in the context of community. You would talk to family relationships. You would have friendships where you would discuss big decisions together. Essentially, everybody's business was everybody else's business in this culture. But notice there's no dialogue in this story. There's only a monologue. Look at verse 17. And he thought, what shall I do? It, it turns out that this man's prosperity has led him to an isolated place in his life. You see, wealth can have an isolating effect. It causes us to build privacy fences and get private homes in distant locations. It can break down community. Uh, the Lord said this in Isaiah 5.8. He said, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Now think about this rich man. Do you think he wanted to be alone? Did he set out at the beginning of his life and say, what kind of factors can I be involved in that will lead me to loneliness? I really want that. Of course not. I bet you, just like you and I, he craved relationships, but when push came to shove, when he was making real-world decisions, he always chose stuff 
over people. And it's not that I have much money to really wrestle with this issue, but I do keep a quote on my desk that reminds me of this. The quote says this, jobs are only jobs. Cars are only organized pieces of metal. Houses will one day fall down, but people are important beyond description. People are important beyond description. You see, this leads to another sad feature of his prosperity. He had a misguided belief system about the possessions under his control. Listen to how he speaks of them. My crops, my barn, my grain, my goods, my soul. Ambrose, the fourth century theologian, astutely observed, the things that we cannot take away with us are not ours. Compassion alone can follow us. His protege was Augustine, and in commenting on this parable of the rich fool, he said that he did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. They're both seeing the same thing about material possessions, that the material possessions under our control do not ultimately belong to us. They're not yours. They're not mine. No, they've been entrusted to us. And and if I'm entrusted something, then I come to realize that the owner of those things, that I'm responsible for him, before him to use them in the way that he would want me to use them. Now, interestingly enough, It's this thought process that causes God to intervene in this story. You know, out of all of the parables in the New Testament, this is the only parable in which God is an actor. And he comes into the story and he he makes a judgment of this rich man. He calls him a fool. You know what fool means? Often when I hear that word, I think that the Bible's saying that someone's not really smart, that they're not good at doing calculations, that they're incompetent, they don't know what they're doing. But that is not what the Scriptures are speaking of when it uses the word fool. It's talking about someone who makes decisions without considering God as a factor at all. Psalms 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Now, it doesn't mean that that individual is an atheist because in that culture, in that context, everybody gave mouth service at least to God. But it means that they lived in such a way that they didn't consider God at all in their decision-making. According to the scriptures, foolishness consists in thinking that happiness, security, significance, longevity— that all of those things can be obtained through acquiring more possessions. And even that one thing which seems most ours, your soul. The scriptures say even that's on loan from God. So what is good, what good is stuff if God determines that it's your time to go? That's what the Bible's talking about here this morning. Now, I want you to notice something with me. 
When you read a story and you think about a character like the rich fool, it's often our thought process to look at this individual and say, you know, this guy really got what was his. I mean, look at this guy. He is a fool. All of that prosperity, all of that wealth, he knows that there's people starving around him. He doesn't use a single penny of that money on anybody else. And look at how lonely he is. He doesn't have anyone to leave that money to. What a sad sap. You see, we have a way when we hear a story of distancing ourselves from the action of separating or removing ourselves from the character in the story. I'm not like him. You want to know what's shocking? As Jesus tells this story of the rich fool, he doesn't turn to that, that brother that was asking about the inheritance. No, he turns and he starts talking to his disciples. And I think that that's very intentional. I think the message that Jesus is trying to tell us by doing that is that you are the rich fool. That we are all either presently the rich fool or we are recovering rich fools. We're all like him in the sense that we want to store up things. We want to be able to say, let's eat and drink and, and be merry and celebrate in our lives. We're like Tevi from Fiddler on the Roof, who's saying, if I were a rich man. And when told that money is the world's curse, he responds, well, then the, may the Lord smite me with it. As you look at this chapter of Luke chapter 12, it turns out that Jesus is dealing with the disciples' relationship to money and possessions. And he addresses three huge issues that we deal with in life. Fear, anxiety, and security issues. Now, what would money and wealth have to do with that? It's pretty simple. Like rich fools, we believe that if we accumulate enough possessions, then we will be able to mitigate risk. We will be able to buy freedom in those areas. I won't be afraid. I won't be anxious. I won't have to worry. But the problem is there's not enough money in the world. You know, Jesus is saying that we have such an unhealthy emotional relationship when it comes to money and possessions. And as you look at this chapter, we're going to see three principles that will give us freedom from that unhealthy relationship. Look at this first principle. Possessions are bonded to a deep, often irrational fear, the fear of one day not having enough. You know, Jesus knows you better than you know you. He knows that we are prone to fear and worry, and so as a response, we build our own little castles with our own little storehouses. We fill those up. It's all about self-preservation. I mean, let's just kind of take recent events and put those into context. During the power outage, Katie was doing some errands, and, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty crazy out there. She came home after running some of her errands, and she said, you know, people just aren't being nice on the road. I mean, they're just driving around. I, I want to educate everyone this morning on something, okay? What happens when you come to a stoplight and all four lights are out? Well, according to Cape Codders, you just fly through that thing and you just keep going. No, it has become 
a four-way stop now. I mean, there's outbursts of anger. Katie, I mean, if you get mad at Katie, you've got a screw loose, right? Somebody honked at her for no reason. You know why people were acting like that? They were scared. Why did people take all of the toilet paper off of shelves in department stores at the beginning of the pandemic? They were scared. I was looking at this meat shortage and the inflation involving it, and one of the big factors with that has to do with the fact that at the height of the pandemic, people stuffed their freezers full of meat, and so they no longer purchased meat in the normal fashion that our supply chain is built upon. Why did people hoard things? They were scared. You see, fear drives us to become our own version of the rich fool. Fear warps me to live the me-first life where I'm going is most important, and, and whether or not my family has theirs, that's what really matters. Here's the thing. Fear will never drive you to be compassionate or caring or considerate towards others. The only thing that will drive you to do that is peace. Now, Jesus addresses this, and he says these words to his rich little fool's Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than freezers full of meat and clothing, the body more than clothing. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Is, is driving through that four-way stop going to add a second to your life? It might remove many seconds, but it won't add. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all of the nations seek after these things. So how do I find freedom from these things? Well, Jesus says that you need to trade in your unhealthy fear for a better sort of fear. Listen to verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see, when you start thinking theologically about fear, you come to realize that much of what you spend and labor with all of your time fearing is irrational. Like, is it really going to go that badly for you if that friend that you're trying to impress rejects you? Is your life going to be over if you lose your material resources? I wonder sometimes if some of our lives might start beginning then. Because they have such a grip on us. Or what about even your health? We, we spend so much time thinking about maintaining my health, staying healthy, looking fit and trim. Newsflash. You're living in a body that is literally breaking down hour by hour, day by day, month by month. Does that mean that you should treat this body poorly? No, of course not. 
But there is a life beyond this life, which leads us to a big principle that you can rest in if that's true. That people should fear the one who cares so much that fear is unnecessary. I love what Jesus does. He tells us to fear God, but then he backs that up with verses 6 and 7. Listen to what he says. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Because even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Then you jump to verses 24 and 25. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow, it's thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you of you of little faith? You see, it turns out that all of this hinges upon trust And I have spent far too much of my life worrying about what I need and far too little of my life resting in the reality that God cares about me. Here's the truth. Your stuff does not care about you. It can't. It's all inanimate objects (laughs) or it's experiences. Those things can't care about you, but God cares about you far more than you could ever understand. He created you. He knows you intimately. He knows the best version of you that you could become. He knows the days of your life. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows everything about you that matters. If that's true, which I promise you it is, then there is a logical response from his disciples. And that's our third principle. The disciples' only treasure must be God himself. See, we come to the heart of Jesus' teaching on wealth and possessions when we ask the question, who do you treasure? Luke 12, he says, God treasures you. Do you treasure him? Then you look at verse 21 and you you come to realize who the rich fool treasured. The text says that so is the one who lays up treasure for himself. Who did he treasure? Who? Himself. He should have treasured God. Later in Luke 12, 32 to 34, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, but with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. Here it is. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, it turns out that we can say, I treasure God all I want, but if my 
pocketbook does not back that up. I don't really treasure him. It turns out that my use of possessions is a revelation of my true self. This is why Jesus talked about possessions so much in his earthly ministry. As fallen people, we are comfortable and fine living with pretenses. We don't mind putting them on. We want people to think that I treasure God. We want people to view us as generous and compassionate. But Jesus says, show me your bank statement. Let me look at it. Oh, 99% on you and yours, 1% on God and others. You don't treasure him. You don't treasure him because the bank statement never lies. Now, if you've been with us for any time, you notice that we talk about giving and generosity here a lot. In fact, we talk about it every Sunday. And there's two reasons for that, and I want to share those with you this morning. The first is a core discipleship issue is what you do with your money. It's talked about all over the scriptures. And, and as your pastor, I love you. The elders of this church love you. The leadership teams of this church love you. We want something for you. We don't want anything from you. But the thing is that your relationship to money and possessions is a significant step in your journey with Christ. You will take seismic leaps in your faith walk when you change your relationship to money. When your impulse is no longer, how can I protect myself? And that turns into, how can I be generous towards others? The second reason is that giving is a supreme act of worship in the Bible. Let me just unpack a big idea from the scriptures from you. The first act of worship in the Bible, it's not some guy in skinny jeans rocking a guitar out. It's, it's not someone singing. It's not someone giving a, a rather long and verbose prayer that sounds so eloquent. And dare I say it, it's not even preaching. The first act of worship in the Bible is giving. Look at the story of Cain and Abel. They came and they presented their offerings before God. Cain gave his leftovers. Abel brought his best. God looked at the gifts that these two brothers brought, and he accepted Abel's gift. Did he do it because God needs things from us? Of course not. He wanted to decipher through what they brought, who treasures me. Look at the Old Testament system of worship. As you read through the Old Testament, you, you come to realize that the foundation of worship in the Old Testament is giving. Now, their economy is based upon what? Goats and rams and sheep and bulls and grains and oils, material things like gold and silver. Our economy is a little different. We do like cash and checks and wire transfers and Bitcoin, which I still don't quite understand. But you come to find out through the Old Testament, that God has made giving a central aspect of worship because he wants more than anything for you and I to treasure him first. Now, everything else is just stuff. And stuff can be useful, but it's just stuff. 
But at the center of it all is God, and, and He is worthy of your worship and adoration. That's why as you look at our mission statement over there, the first priority in our mission is worship. It's God. Because I'll tell you what, we could see tons of churches planted in Togo. We could see them planted here in the Northeast. We could see people coming to Christ. But if we don't treasure God, what does it matter? Let me leave you with this final thought. Did you, as a child, did you ever play with one of these Chinese finger traps? I'll tell you, my day yesterday was fun. Uh, Kids could tell you more about it, but we went out for like three hours trying to find one of these at the stores. So we didn't, and you're going to have to use your imagination with me this morning. Now, I remember the first time I used one of these. I think it was at a a birthday party or something like that. The magic with the the Chinese finger trap is that first experience you have with it when you don't know the trick. You stick your grubby little fingers into the trap and then you just start talking away at it and you pull as hard as you can and then what does the trap do? It clenches down tighter. But then someone tells you the trick. They say, stop straining. Push inward, and that will relieve the pressure, and you will get your fingers free. You see, it turns out that your emotional relationship to money and possessions is just like that trap. When we get money and possessions, we become like the rich fool. We just start tugging away at our emotional relationship to those things. You know, if I have more and more and more of this, then I'm going to have more and more and more freedom in my life. But it turns out that you don't get any of that freedom. In fact, the more that you acquire, the more you fear losing. The more that you think to yourself, I'm going to protect myself, the harder it hits when you realize that bad things can still happen. When you make your way to the end of the magic rainbow, you find that happiness wasn't there. So how do you get freedom? You have to stop straining. You have to give him control. Remember Jesus? Seek his kingdom, and all of these things will be added to you. It turns out that when I open my hand to God with my resources and say, God, I trust you with these, when I change my impulse from self-preservation to generosity, then I can start treating money the way it needs to be treated. It's a tool, a resource. But God, God is my real treasure. Would you bow your heads with me? Oh, God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me.
God, you are our treasure. We are so thankful for you. In Jesus' name we pray.